Psalm 126, Restore Our Fortunes, O Lord, a Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Awesome. God, uh, we come before you, and I just ask for you to do a work in our heart as we continue our worship uh, in your word. Would we have a reverence for your word? Would we see them as true and right? In fact, the only source of truth in this world that has uh, so many deceptions lying on either side. Um, God, would we just be able to see your beauty? Would we be able to encounter and see you today in your word, in our fellowship together, in the singing? And uh, God, would we exhort, encourage one another as we go out into the week and make an impact in our city for you? Um, we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Psalm 126. Before we jump into it, I want to just do an overview of where we've been so far. So just a couple quick reminders. The Psalms, it's the, it's the biggest book in the Bible. It has 150 chapters within it, and they are poetic songs. Now, if you grew up not liking or being fond of the idea of poetry, my encouragement to you is that the reason the Bible has been formed the way it is in multiple different types of literature is to be able to open up our hearts to the vastness, to the, the complexity of who God is. It, it allows this book to become something that is not just simply true, but gives us the ability to see God in different ways. And so the Psalms, does, do, the Psalms do that in the sense that they help us understand who God is and what he has done through prayer and through the crying out of our hearts, through knowing how do, how do we engage God even with our emotions and what that looks like. This particular group of Psalms we're going through, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, are called the Song of Ascents. It's this little subtitle. If you've ever made a playlist on Apple Music or Spotify, this is what this group of psalms is. It's a bunch of songs that have been grouped together, centered around kind of a theme or an idea. And that idea is that of a journey. So if think about a refugee moving from a, a place of danger to a place of safety. Think about a pilgrim who's moving from a place far from God, moving to his very presence, Think of that as a journey, but more specifically for us who are followers of Jesus, this is a description of what it's like to make that journey when we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we put the broken pieces of our life in our hands, what it looks like to journey with him, to journey towards his peace, to journey towards that time when we believe he is coming back and he's going to restore peace across this earth. And so... As I've been preaching through these psalms, one of the things I have recognized is it's not so much about the end of the journey, though that's there. You'll see the peace of God is a major theme throughout all 15 of these psalms. 
but it's also about how do you do the journey well. So look at this for the, the, the first few Psalms we've gone through. Psalm, Psalm 120, be shamelessly desperate for Jesus together. That's where the journey begins, where we've come to the end of ourselves and we're crying out for the Lord. Psalm 121, have a higher vision in God's promises than the mountains in our pathway. Psalm 122, run to worship together. Psalm 123, God is God and we are not, so let's get comfortable on our knees together. Psalm 124, we are unified and we are mobilized in God's rescuing power. Psalm 125, we must invest in the security of God. So I give that just as a, as a way for us to kind of pull aside for just a second. Remember where we've been setting up this next psalm, Psalm 126. And my hope through this and even my prayer that's been going on through this week is praying for your hearts that there would be a desert bloom. And this is what I mean by that. If you look at the middle of the psalm, right at verse 4, it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. The Negev is a specific place in about south-central Israel. It's a desert place, um, and it's as desert as desert can get. It's brown. It's ugly. There's nothing much great going on there. I looked up a video, though, to see this effect that happens, this desert bloom. And I looked at a video in a desert in Africa, and it looked very similar, actually, to the Negev. It's just brown, it's rocky, it's desolate. There's just not much that's good there. But then a radical thunderstorm hits it. And it's like over a short amount of time, the water rushes in, flash floods happen. And as the water soaks in, all of a sudden the brown turns to green. And then you see the animals come in because now they've got water, they've got food, they've got sustenance and nourishment before them. And we can experience the same thing as we journey towards Jesus. And usually it's not just one. There's going to be multiple times where it feels like we're walking through a desert of some kind. Maybe it's that we've been pursuing people for the sake of Jesus or investing in discipleship and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. We're putting in this energy and effort. It doesn't seem to be doing a thing. Or maybe it's within your own life, your pursuit of Jesus, of knowing him. You're, you're trying to read the Bible. You're trying to prayer, pray. It's not going anywhere. It's getting frustrating. It feels like, man, I open up God's word hoping something will come out, something, hoping something will change my life, but I'm sitting here wondering, God, I'm not getting anything out of this. In fact, even just wanting to be in God's word is being difficult or wanting to pray or wanting to be near to him. And so we experience this, desert times throughout our journey. And as we continue this journey, not alone, as we continue this journey together as God's church, what we need to do is not only anticipate, but prepare for the desert times, and then continually ask for God to bring us desert blooms for him to give us that sustenance, that nourishment, to reign on us, for him to bring spiritual renewal and fill us up for the next part of the journey. So there's just two points in this psalm we're gonna be looking at. One is God has renewed us, and then the second point is God will renew us. 
Let's read the first three verses of this psalm, starting in 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So we see three things as we see God's renewal within us. First of all, that he fills us full of wonder. He has filled us full of wonder. He has filled us full of laughter and shouts of joy, and he has filled us to overflowing. So first of all, full of wonder. There's a phrase in this psalm. It happens twice. You'll see it in the first line. It says, when the Lord, and the phrase is, restored the fortunes. And then you'll see that repeated in verse 4. What that means in a literal sense is a turning of captivity. So it's like if captivity was up on top and you've been in slavery and things are happening, it's like flipping that over and you go from captivity into freedom. Or you can go from a difficult time into a time of renewal. That's the imagery it's trying to get across. And so for the Jewish culture, for Israel, they have many of these times. In fact, one of the things that's beautiful when they follow Jesus is they have embedded, as we look at the Old Testament, these times of remembrance, these intentional times of feasts, these intentional times of reading God's word. It's why they have the Sabbath on Saturday and they would gather together to hear God's word read. These times were meant to remind them all of what God had done, the times of renewal that God had brought to them. And even as people have looked at these psalms, this particular group of the Song of Ascents, it seems to be a that it was made right after Israel had gone through a time of captivity where um, Babylon had invaded Israel and had removed them out of the land. And then many years later, hundreds of years later, they come back and there's a re time of rebuilding. And so many think this may have been put together after that, especially as rhythms came back that they'd had before where people would make journeys to Jerusalem as a nation to worship God. This psalm, we don't know. Was it, was it written during this time? Was it not? We're not given an author in it. Some, in, of course, scholars argue all the time about whether, what it's referring to. But we do know that it's referring to a time in their past when they remembered and were celebrating what God had done. And I just want to use that time of exile, hit a few points uh, to help us understand what may have been the heart behind writing this song. In 720 BC, that's 720 years before Christ came to earth, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes of Israel, were destroyed in exile by the Assyrians. In 586, Judah, that's the tribe of Judah and the temple, all that remained was destroyed in exile by Babylon. In 539, Cyrus the Great of Syria conquers Babylon. And then in 450 BC, Cyrus the son sends Nehemiah and Ezra back to re build. Why I have a mini history lesson, because if, if you can imagine for a minute being in Israel at that time, being ripped out of your homeland, taken somewhere else to the point where not multiple generations have passed since you were in your homeland, and yet that remnant in Babylon for hundreds of years was faithfully pursuing and pursuing the one true 
God until there came a time for them to come back. And it was crazy what God did. When Nehemiah went back, and, and you can look at this in the, in the book of Nehemiah, he had the ear of Cyrus the Great. He was the leader of Persia at this time. Who, who is he to care about this little nation of Israel? And yet when Nehemiah comes to him, not only is this Cyrus the Great supportive of Israel going back, but he provides resources for them. He provides the money for them to go back. He provides like practical resources to begin rebuilding Jerusalem, and he provides protection from them because the land's been full of enemies. This is crazy time. This is a time for people who look at the events happening and being like, no one else could have done this except the Lord. Let me give you one more example of this kind of wonder, this full of wonder as someone who's writing this psalm. I use an analogy of a character in the Bible named Job. Job went through a horrendous time in his life. He's following God faithfully, and then God allows for great evil to come upon him. His, all his kids are killed. His wife turns his back on him. His friends judge him. His body is full of sores. He's lost all his land, all his money. It's gone. And he's sitting in the ashes, just scraping at his sores. And yet, in that moment, God uses that time in his life to draw Job to this incredible conclusion. Even while he's still in the dust and the ashes, he, he realizes all of his life, does all of it is worth it as long as his soul is secure in knowing the Lord. It's powerful, but this is what God does that's so beautiful. If you go to the end of Job, the end of his story, in Job 42, 10 through 11, it says this, and the Lord restored the fortunes. This is the same phrase that's in our psalm. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So this is the kind of thing that this psalm should stir in us. This poetic song, this piece of scripture, this piece of truth is stirring us to remember when God has done things like this for us. It's supposed to make us be full of wonder at a past events to say, wow, God, you did this, and I don't deserve all the goodness that you have given me. Full of wonder. We look at past events and where God has met us in our life. We're also full of laughter and shouts of joy. I was just, uh, I talked to someone last week and the question was brought up, and it's so funny because this has happened like twice this month, this question of like, what is joy? Because we, we know if, if, if we're followers of Jesus, he doesn't promise that we're going to be happy, that we're going to have a full bank account or all these things. The fullness of joy that God gives us is so much greater than that, but there's this question, what is joy? If you look in the, the Greek, fast forward to the New Testament, and you look at the definition of joy, it's calm delight. And it's this thing, like, as, as you think about joy, it's something that is developed within your heart. Where your care is, where your hope is, where your faith is, that's where your joy is going to come from, which means that you can have joy no matter what is happening within your life. I also like this definition that, that, that John Piper wrote. He said, Christian joy 
is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And I love this definition because it ties in with this idea of calm delight. If our eyes are open to the work that Jesus is doing, not only in our life but in others' lives, we are able to have that delight. Where we miss joy often is because we're blind to what Jesus is doing. Let me give you an example to, to help put, put this forward and why we might have times of laughter and shouts of joy. I have a friend. He is an American football fan, and he is a fan of the Bengal Tigers. Now, you might not watch football at all. That's okay. Just know that the Bengal Tigers, it's been a dry season for many, many years as far as any sort of victories that come out of that team. And yet, there's this delight that comes from year after year. He gets on his jersey. He watches the, watches the team play. He does all these things because he's hoping for the best. And there's this calm delight that's still there despite the losses, despite everything that comes. Well, guess what happened this year? The Bengal Tigers made it to the Super Bowl. It's like the top-tier game. They finally made it. And I'm guessing, I wasn't sitting with him, that there may have been shouts of joy that came out watching that team win the playoffs and, and get to that point. Now, that's just football. That's a sport thing. But this, this is the kind of thing that happens with our pursuit of Jesus. As we keep our faith in him, as we're investing our life into pursuing him, it develops this joy that's constant, that's always there. doesn't mean you aren't going to face times of discouragement, or doubt, or all these things. But man, when God shows up, it lifts up our soul to shouts of joy when we're invested in what God is doing. And so we see this with the writer of this psalm, who's remembering this time when there were shouts of joy, when they didn't care if people thought they were crazy. They were like, no, the Lord has done good things. We've seen him. We've seen the beauty of the Lord as he has acted, as he has saved us, as he has preserved us. And the last part of this is we see that in these past events, the Lord has brought a fullness to overflowing. Look at the last, uh, verse three, it says, uh, sorry, back up to verse 2, halfway down. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. This is reminiscence of so many stories within Israel's history. It's like the time when God rescued them out of slavery from Egypt. And as they're leaving, Egypt is like giving away wealth to them as they are going off to leave. But the story doesn't stop there. Egypt doesn't want to see their captives go away. So they pursue them to the Red Sea. They're going to wipe them out. And yet God, through a miracle, parts the sea and rescues Israel. And can you imagine the shouts of joy? There's a song written about it. If you go to Exodus and read through there, there's a song written in just praise of God and his miraculous saving grace. And so... This part of the psalm ends with a present tense. If you'll notice, it's reflecting on a past event that's happened. But in verse 3, it's like, imagine someone kind of sitting back, remembering a really good time, a really good memory, and then this comes out. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, when this person was writing the psalm, 
It's not during a happy time. As we go into the last section, we'll see they're in a place of desert time, a place of wondering, where is God? Where is he? I'm not necessarily seeing him working in my life or in the world around me. And yet, in this present moment, he, whoever the author is writes, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. It's communal gladness. Not just one person, but all people. And it's a present gladness, meaning that, yes, they're going through difficulty, but they are glad. So think of it this way. If you want to prepare for when life is hard, when you're in a desert season, bank memories of what God has done. Because I can tell you, just from my own experience, that not actively remembering those moments makes it so difficult to focus when we go through a hard season. We tend to, I tend to focus on what's going on in the present moments, get discouraged by the adversity that I'm facing, rather than saying, no, I'm not going to focus on that first. I'm first going to focus on what God has done and find the gladness, remember the shouts of joys, remember when Jesus showed up. And so this is the way we maintain that joy. This is the way we have that calm delight that's constantly bubbling in our heart no matter what. There's two verses that highlight this. First of all, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 through 18, it says, so let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. And then secondly, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalms 37, 4. When our delight is in the Lord, when that constant joy is in the Lord, our desires are going to be set right. They're going to be in the right place. If maybe you're new to following Jesus or you don't know Jesus, what's hard is, is this world is temporary. We know one thing is that humanity, at some point, we're, we're going to die, our possessions are going to go away, and we've got to ask ourselves, like, where is my hope? Where's the fullness of life coming from? And often I have found when it's not in Jesus and I put it in something else, it's like a mirage in the desert where you go after that thing thinking like, oh, there's water. There's something that's actually going to satisfy me. And as soon as you get to that place that you think there's water there, you just find more sand that doesn't satisfy you. And so for us, do we have faith in what God has done for us? I think we find ourselves depleted of joy often because we do not believe that God has good intentions for us because we've left those memories locked up in the back of our mind and they're not present. They're not there. We're not reminding ourselves of them. And so this is what I want to encourage you. I, I want to encourage you with two things this week. The first one is, is a meditation time. And by that, what I mean is taking this first part of the psalm, Psalm 126, one through three. Get some time, like 30 minutes, just 30 minutes. Read through the psalm, spend five of those minutes sitting in silence. And just whenever thoughts come up, because they will, I can guarantee it, just bat them away in your mind and just sit and reflect on the psalm. And I want to encourage you to pray. Pray to God and just simply talk to him about what he's done for you. Pray to God and and pray about what he's done for you specifically. But then, for what he's done for your family, if you have a family, or for your friends. And then, 
in prayer what God has done for Radiant Church. And let that just stir some joy within you and just see how far you can go. Maybe it's going to go past a half hour. Or maybe you need to do a second version of this where it's just coming and you don't have to make it fancy. Just be like, God, I saw you here. I've seen you there. I've seen you in all these different places within my life, within the life of my church family, within the life of this city. So please take some time. Grab that. Spend some time with Jesus. The second point that we're looking at is asking God for a restoration, to ask for renewal. So let's read the last three verses of this psalm. Starting in verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. One thing I love about this is that the most repeated phrase in this psalm is shouts of joy. I love that. We see some action come into these last three verses. It starts off with an asking for abundance. And this builds right off of this memory. I love this quote from Derek Kidner. He says, memory, so far from slipping into nostalgia, now gives the impetus to hope. We can dare to hope. We can dare to have faith because we've seen God show up in the past. And we must, we must ask. We must expect God to do the same in our lives, in our families, and in our church. Um, Going back to this idea of the exile that the Jews went through, there's a great story of what that community was like in the time that they were in Babylon, in the time they were in Persia. Um, in this case, it was during the time of the first part of Babylon. It's the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And there's a story of three Jews who were holding hard to their faith and following the one true God. And the culture they were in was trying to get them to let go, let go of following Jesus and pursuing him. And I love this scene where they had resisted so much to the point where the king in Babylon was like, I am going to kill you. I'm going to throw you into a fire unless you bow down to me. And so in Daniel 3.15, we see this, where King Nebuchadnezzar says, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the three Jews, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is what it's like to ask for God's deliverance. Here they come. They have no idea if God's going to show up. In fact, they, are, they go so far as to say, hey, we're putting our faith in God, and we might burn up. We might die today, but that doesn't matter because we are still following our God. They don't know how God's going to work or how he's going to show up. And if you know the rest of the story, God does show up in a very present and real way, saves them from being burned alive. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. But, there's, but this goes even further. This goes even further. 
That story was written and passed on, most likely verbally and often, to those who would be going into Jerusalem so many years later. So even if they had gotten burned up, let's just say it did, that story would have carried on to encourage and support those who would be going through their own desert season later as they are building up Jerusalem and they are being threatened from enemies when they feel like I've got to carry a sword in one hand and I've got to build the wall with another hand and I've got to trust that God's going to show up and preserve us. And so that's the power of memory. That's the power of the stories that God has done in our life. It's like a desert bloom and we cry for God to (laughs) to bring that abundance, to bring that rain and the trust that he's going to work. And here's the thing. We will not waste our time in what God has allowed to mature us, to harden us, to grow us, to nurture us. We must faithfully continue, fully expecting God to act. We must continue asking for desert blooms in our heart, in the hearts of our church, in the hearts of our city. And this is where we move to the next action. Sowing in tears and reaping in joy. This is an interesting analogy. Uh, especially because we live up here in northern Alaska where farming is possible. It's just pretty dang difficult. And so maybe actually we can relate to this more than other people can. There is a need for a desert bloom in the earth to fight back the dryness and the lack of resources. Just like spiritually, the earth covered in sin, covered in corruption, needs a desert bloom for there to be life. And it began with Jesus. Now think about this. Farming metaphors are used all across the Old and the New Testament. Jesus sowed with tears. He put in the work coming down, fully God, fully man. Think of it this way. It's like God cast a seed down onto the hard ground, the hard spiritual ground of earth, and that was Jesus. Jesus comes, and he does an amazing work among the people who were called God's people, the Israelites, and they put him on the cross. He invested and sowed seeds of discipleship within his followers, and they turned their backs on him when he went to the cross. So he's doing all this, and then as you look at the way that Jesus goes, what happens? He, he ends up dead on the cross, taking the punishment for the brokenness, the corruption of sin. What we've done against God, he took on himself, and he was put into a tomb, into a dark place, and it was shut up. And yet what happens when you plant a seed into the dark earth? The seed dies, but from the shell it breaks apart, and then the plant begins to grow, and the root system begins to go out. And this is the crazy part. Jesus walks out of that tomb, and the seeds that he planted in his disciples was not in vain. That's why he left. He said, I'm going to promise my Holy Spirit to come. And then what happens? What happens is you see these seeds of the disciples get scattered out, first in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, and then in Judea. Those are regions around Jerusalem. They begin moving out from there. It continues to the point where God's kingdom, his disciples, his followers catch the attention of Rome. And if you know anything about history, Rome was the superpower. It was the America of that time. It was dominating. And 
This small group of Christians made an impact that big because of what the seeds of the gospel can do. So what does it mean for us? The church has been called to the mission of sowing seeds in dark places. The church is called to be that desert bloom on this dry and dusty earth. For God to work, he has put us here to faithfully plant seeds of the gospel. And so this metaphor that's being used here in Psalm is a major theme and thread from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we are a part of it. So how do we do it? When we sow seeds of the gospel in our heart, or rather I should say when the Spirit begins sowing the seed of the gospel and the good news in our heart, what happens? Well, it begins to give us new desires, new abilities. We, get, we understand everything that Jesus did. We understand that he loved us when we were unlovable. We understood that he went to the cross when we were enemies of him. We understand that he provided for us when we couldn't provide for ourselves. He forgave us even though we didn't deserve it. He pursued us even though we're stubborn and hard to pursue. He prayed for us. You can read it in John 17. He prayed for us. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He served those who don't deserve it. When we get that, when it begins changing our lives, the way we plant seeds is we do the same thing. We do what he did. So we love those who are unlovable. We stand up for those who are beat down. We provide for those who can't provide for themselves. We forgive those who don't deserve it. We pursue those who are stubborn and hard to pursue. We pray for those who persecute us. We serve those who don't deserve us. And when we do those things, we can say the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We understand that what Jesus has done for us is the greatest thing that could ever happen. And we can be glad. It can be that calm delight that's constantly underneath us. And it leads to those shouts of joy. So when we understand what Jesus has done, we go out and we do the same. And then what does the reaping in joy look like? When do we, it's those key moments. Just, and that's why I use that kind of silly example of my friend who's a Bengals fan, because it's like you're constantly hoping, you're constantly putting in the work, you're constantly doing those things, but when those victories happen, you're able to say, yes, God has done it. Maybe it's seeing someone come to know Jesus, seeing someone conquer a sinful habit, seeing someone increase in discipleship, seeing someone learn to simply be with Jesus at his feet, seeing the church grow in unity and in mobility in reaching into the darkness of the city, seeing an answer to prayer, seeing God's presence in the midst of suffering, whatever it is, when you are able to see Jesus acting in your life, in the life of others, in the life of our city, we need to take advantage of every moment and celebrate it and give shouts of joy. I realize this is something that I lack in and part of me wonders if it's, it's it's a cultural thing as well. We prize a lot of getting hard work done here in Alaska. It's like, no, we don't take breaks off. We, we go hard. We can sleep when we're dead. All those things go on, and sometimes we don't take the time to celebrate, to celebrate the things of God, to celebrate what he's doing and to open up our eyes and maybe just having some time around a fire or something and just be like, man, where have we seen God work? And not just to feel like we're being good Christians doing it, but to genuinely ask that question. And maybe for us, like, if you're like, man, I can't think of anything right now, 
I want to encourage you to ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes because I can guarantee you he is working more than you know, just like with Job who lost everything. And then God shows up in a thunderstorm and says, you don't get it. I, I made this entire universe. Trust me, I have a plan, and it's for ultimate good. You just got to trust me. So I, that's something I hope in, the, in as we continue to grow as a church, as we continue to be family together, that we'll have those sweet moments where we have shouts of joy. I love Philippians 1.6. Paul's speaking to a church, a New Testament church. He says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here, here's the second thing I want to encourage you in, a second meditation this week, is read through the second part of this psalm, Psalm 126, 4 through 6. Again, take five minutes of just sitting in silence, clearing your mind of the lies of the enemy, clearing your mind of all the things that you've got to get done, and, and get your heart where you're sitting before Jesus. And then begin asking Jesus, where do you want me to sow the gospel in my own heart? This is something that, that God's been working in me right now. I've started realizing that there are ways throughout his scripture that he's provided for us to get to know him at a deeper level. That regularly reading your Bible, regularly praying, yes, they're meant to be good rhythms in your heart so that you open up avenues and conduits of his gospel to get inside of you. But it goes beyond that. There, there were times for Jesus' disciples where they would regularly fast. They'd regularly seek solitude to be with Jesus. They'd regularly seek time together. Why? All this was done to see Jesus, to do what he did. In fact, Jesus did these rhythms within his life. So what I want to encourage you in is where do you need to grow in that? Where, where do you need to maybe open up those conduits, not as checkboxes to do, but to be like, Jesus, I need to see you in my life. And I come humbly asking, where do I need to grow? Maybe it's getting every day into the word for even just five minutes. Like just, just start there, you know? And then develop prayer, add prayer into the mix. And then f- learn what fasting is like. I'm hoping actually later that we can do some deep dive into these th- some of these things to see what scripture has to say about this. And if you have questions about any of these, please come and talk to me because I believe this is the way that we develop ourselves, develop the gospel within our hearts so that we are ready to go, so that we know what to do in those desert times, so that we can take advantage of when God brings the desert bloom in our life and the rains. The second thing is not only to ask Jesus about sowing the gospel in your own heart, but where to sow the gospel in the church. As we interact with everyone, this is the means for us to develop each other, to equip each other, to see where we can begin praying for each other, to be able to um, reach out to people in your GC, to reach out to other people into, into the church and figure out, man, how can I be Jesus to my family? And then last of all, sowing the gospel in the world. This is, this is the thing here at Radiant, is our identity statement is that we are a family of missionary servants sent to make disciples that make disciples. And my hope in this next season is that we are mobilized and we are unified around this vision of seeing Jesus move out into this city, that we are his hands, that we are his feet, that we are sowing the seeds of the gospel in dark places, trusting that God 
will bring the harvest that we read at the end, bringing his sheaves with him. As followers of Jesus, we know our ultimate hope and joy is when Jesus returns. That's when we're going to see all the effort that we put here on this earth find full fruition. But what I love about this psalm is it calls us to pray now for those desert blooms, praying for God to show up. And I encourage you, we've got a prayer time at three. It's not just to do a good Christian thing. It's to do real work for this church. And I encourage you, come, sow some seeds of the gospel through prayer with us. I want to end on this last quote. It's from Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in the 1800s. He said this, Even as the Lord sends floods down on the dry beds of southern torrents after long droughts, so he can fill our wasted and wearied spirits with floods of holy delight. Let's pray. Jesus, we come humbly to ask you for the desert bloom in the lives here right now as we've gathered together as your church. Jesus, I pray for anyone who is out there chasing mirages, who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that that the sowing begins now and that the, the harvest will come soon. Jesus, I just pray for us as a church. God, give us um, just the fruits of faithfulness. We've been through a lot of different things as a church in the last year. Um, So God, we ask for a desert bloom. We ask for a time where we can uh, just engage faithfully in following after you, Jesus. I pray that we would tighten up in our ways of being able to seek your gospel in our own hearts so that we have the ability to keep spreading seeds, spreading seeds in the, heart, in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, spreading seeds in those uh, who don't know Jesus in the dark places. God, we read this psalm. How beautiful it is to read something that was written hundreds of years ago and yet see the beauty and the joy that's there. I pray in this next year, God, just for those sweet moments, we're able to see you at work, and it creates shouts of joy, Jesus. God, I just thank you, even this morning, hearing from a, um, a sister church, uh, Radiant Eagle River, where the pastor there was considering going part-time because they weren't making budget, and God, you provided $13,000 this morning, so he wouldn't have to do that so he could continue doing his work full-time. Jesus, we, we say, God, you did that. The Lord has done great things. And so I pray that even as that happened this morning, God, that this week we begin to see things. Open our eyes, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. And God, I just pray that the worship continues from here, that as we finish up with singing, that as we finish up with conversations, we leave this building, that we move out in courage, anticipating that you will bring the rain. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.